Welcome to episode 31 of the Lady Science Podcast. Uh, this podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. Uh, with you every month, as usual, are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Um, before we jump into the episode, a little update on our pledge drive from last month. We did not reach our goal, so we're not able to um, do everything that we wanted. Um, but we did get a significant boost in monthly pledges, which goes a really long way in helping us maintain a budget, making sure that we can pay all of our writers on time and pay all of our editors on time. And so I just wanted to extend a very big thank you to everybody who uh, helped us out either by pledging or sharing our drive and Lady Science with their family and friends. Uh, we do take pledges all year round. So if you <laughs> if you weren't able to pledge during the pledge drive itself, um, you know, you can pledge anytime. We're always accepting them. So <laughs> yes. Yes. And 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 I feel like this this brings us closer to like reaching the point that we want to be at. Um, even if it wasn't everything we hoped and dreamed, but nothing is these days. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we understand that this is like real hard times for lots and lots of people. So, um, um, we're grateful for everything that we got and what everybody did. And we really also hope that everyone's just doing okay out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, how are my fellow hosts doing today? <laughs> I I laugh because I know the answer to this question. <laughs> Basically, our voices are our meat suits animated by our ghosts at this point. I think our souls have left <laughs> our true. bodies. Um, yeah, this is Anna, or what's the essence of Anna, whispering around, broadcasting to you live from my shell of a body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I exist in time and space, and that's really all I can say. Um, yeah, man, this is a weird energy to start the show. <laughs> it is. Everybody's every got weird energy right now. Everybody does. Yes. Uh, so I guess all we can do is embrace it. Um, yeah. Let's just yeah. ride that wave until the end. Exactly. Um, and and I will admit that uh, this podcast is built around one of the sources of my weird energy currently, which is my own professional anxieties. And this is going to sound weird, but um, it does make sense because I do work in museums. Um, I've been thinking a lot about gender in science museums because of COVID, um, which is not necessarily something that you might think might go together, but uh, turns out they do. Like so many fields, museums have been uh, hard hit by coronavirus shutdowns. Uh, museums are far from the only field, but uh, it's the news that I hear pouring in all the time. Um, and uh, there is, of course, a spreadsheet uh, being crowdsourced by museum professionals um, that is tracking information about layoffs that have happened in the museum field. 
according to that spreadsheet, about 100 museums have laid off or furloughed workers, and that is surely um, an underestimate because that's just self-reported. Uh, here in Philadelphia, where I live, the Franklin Institute, which is the big science and technology museum in town, um, laid off about 200 people just two weeks after it was forced to close to the public. And that 200 people included all of their part-time staff. Uh, those layoffs haven't affected institutions evenly. Uh, this is where gender starts to come into it. Uh, about half of museum professionals are women. And women are far more likely to work in education and visitor services departments, which are precisely the departments more likely to be affected affected by these layoffs. Uh, that would be obviously pretty infuriating under any circumstances, um, but I have found it particularly maddening given that for almost a century, science museums and science centers on the whole have had missions grounded in education and interactivity. And so that kind of brought me to wanting to spend some time today talking about the history of science museums, how that kind of hyper-focus on education came about, and uh, what that means for the museum workforce right now. So museums that preserve and display medical information and technological marvels for research purposes have been around since the early modern era. And we've talked about these kinds of medical and technological collections before, particularly back in our episode dedicated to the anatomical Venus in episode 24. But by most accounts, the interactive science and technology museum, the kind we think about today, first came about in the early 20th century. One of the first of those museums was the Deutsche Museum in Munich, which opened in 1903. And unlike the displays of medical curiosities, uh, like the anatomical Venus, fossils and taxidermied exotic animals or fancy scientific instruments, the Deutsche Museum was primarily focused on educating the general public and not just collecting objects for the sake of display and research, most likely objects that were looted from other countries anyway. It was also highly interactive and literally had buttons you could press and levers you could pull. The Deutsche Museum inspired a number of other interactive science museums uh, all over the world. And uh, building on the kind of experiences created at big fancy scientific lectures and World's Fair demonstrations in the 19th century, uh, these uh, museums were really interested in educating people through spectacle. Uh, so some museums even use techniques from cinema. So this is like early movies are happening. And so like that's all the rage as well in this moment. Uh, so, for example, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago offered a number of different simulations, including one called the coal mine, which took visitors into, you guessed it, a simulation coal mine. Mm. <laughs> which just like everything about this just like makes me laugh. Yeah, did it have like little children in there, like working <laughs> in the coal mines, getting into the small crevices? Yeah, so, like I'm just picturing like well-dressed middle class, like Edwardian or like uh, 1920s, I think 1920s, like Chicagoans, like going into this like experience of like the dusty coal mine. Um, it cracks me up, which just like cracks me up. But isn't that different, honestly, than some kinds of simulations we still have today in museums? So like, yep. We're, we're still doing this stuff. Um, and according to an article uh, called Rationally Entertained, colon, Non-Museological Foundation of the Contemporary Science Center, uh, the experience included, quote, a cage elevator, rail cars, underground mine shaft, and mining machinery made to appear to be working the face of a coal seam. 
Uh, the exhibit still exists today. I have never been to the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, but now I want to go and like see this. Yeah. Uh, but of and of course there are other examples in um, science and technology museums uh, of these sort of like simulating some kind of technological experience uh, that are that are more recent. The one that I'm thinking of is uh, I'm in Dallas and we have the Perot Museum of Nature and Science and in the Tom Hunt Energy Hall. There is a virtual reality tour. So, I mean, you know, in the 19th century, they are using the innovations of you know, like new cinema. Here we're using virtual reality to uh, do a, a tour of the Barnett Shale drilling rig. And um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I've never been on the tour. I've been in the Tom Hunt Energy Hall. But I mean, it's real weird. I think, I mean, it's just real weird to go down and like see and explore in like a really uh, spectacular way one of the things that's destroying our planet. So the one that really jumped in, jumped to mind for me was I remember as a child, I, I grew up in Southern California and uh, at some point as a kid, my family um, took me and my sister to the California Science Center in Los Angeles, which is part of Exposition Park. And uh, and there was an earthquake simulator that like the room shook and but also there was like a T like it looked like a living room and there was a TV and like the TV would like have like disaster movie reporting, kind of, but like slightly more realistic kind of thing. And um, in the nine, like it's still true, but I feel like there was this like burst in the nineties of like the big one is coming and we might all die. You should probably have canned goods available, um, as as like the kind of natural disaster discussion in California. Uh, but I remember being super weird and also yeah, like like this is like super real, guys. I can't. I think I went there before the nineteen ninety four Northridge earthquake. Um, but it seems particularly strange to have that there, say, after that earthquake, um, since that did some significant destruction to precisely that uh, those areas of California. And it's like, yeah, people have lived through this. Uh, I don't know if we need to simulate it in a science museum for families. Yeah, I can imagine that being a thing that, like, visitors to L.A. are, like, super into. But, like, the people right. that live there are like, no, we're good. <laughs> right. So the popularity of these kinds of interactive science museums really exploded after World War II as part of the sort of generally increased interest in science education. The 1950s and 60s were the era of Sputnik and the space race and Mr. Wizard and science television. Um, we talked about science on TV during this era with our guest Ingrid Okert in our August episode. And you'll definitely see a lot of parallels between the approaches to science education that we talked about with her and the interactive science museums that were founded in this same era. One of the biggest and most influential of these Cold War era science museums is the Exploratorium in San Francisco. And that is a fabulous name for an interactive science museum, yes. by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> The Exploratorium was founded in 1969 by Frank Oppenheimer, a physics teacher who had developed a, quote, library of experiments over the course of his teaching career. He was particularly interested in having people learn science by doing experiments, and he envisioned a museum that encouraged people to conduct experiments on their own. 
But while he wanted visitors to have the opportunity to experience and learn in a self-directed way, he also thought that it was important for the Exploratorium to hire staff and volunteer, quote, explainers to, uh, well, as you guessed it, explain why the experiment worked the way that it did. Uh, and I, I kind of love that they call them explainers. They still do to this day, like like people who would be called like education assistants or floor staff or other things that other museums are called explainers at the Exploratorium. Um, and I feel like this is like kind of your basic template for the classic science museum um, exhibit or like experience that you have. Uh, at a lot of these like big science centers um, all over the place. Sort of you go into a room and there's some kind of gadget or like something you can interact with and you poke at it and it does something or you pull a lever or you pour weird things together. Um, and then a person who is almost always wearing a brightly colored t-shirt, that's the rule, <laughs> I swear, comes up and is like, hey, what are you doing? Or what do you think that does? Or hey, can I show you something cool? They usually say that if you're doing, if you're not doing anything or if you're doing the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> but like, like, I don't know, did you, did you guys spend time like in science museums as a kid and like have the sort of weird awkward but like enthusiastic interaction with like your your museum floor staff well i didn't really have that with the floor staff that i remember anyway the one that we had in dallas before we got the perot a few years ago i remember in my child memory <laughs> that to me it felt like a big huge fucking playground and mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure there was staff but I just recall kind of like tearing in there like a tornado and just like touching everything that could be touched, like pulling anything that could be pulled. I remember doing that and it was kind of just like felt like free reign of this really exploratory space. I really liked that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I do remember like um, at the aquarium, which isn't necessarily a science museum, but there's like similar stuff going on. There's a touch pool which is obviously uh, crude by someone right. and is not just like <laughs> there for people to stick their gross fingers in and harass the animal. And I just remember thinking when I was a kid that that's the job I wanted to have when I was like a teenager because I wanted yeah. to be a marine biologist, but I thought that would be like a good <laughs> middle step for me would be to be the touch pool attendant at the aquarium <laughs> and teach everybody about all the creatures that were in there. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking about touch pool attendance too. Cause I think that is the thing where like there's always someone there for obvious like safety reasons. Um, but those people's main job is to like teach people things. And as as an adult, when I have seen touch pools, like my thought has always been that seems like a stressful combination of things to do. Like you like it's I mean, like anything that involves educating children, let's be real, but it really does involve like a really like careful balance of do not like harm yourself or any other living things. And I want you to be excited about this weird creature. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's hard to say if if the Exploratorium was the first science museum to take this approach. Um, and obviously, as we were noting earlier, um, Oppenheimer was pulling from lots of other trends in the culture. You know, this is the big moment of like chemistry sets and science on television, like we were saying, and uh, 
everyone should learn science so we can defeat, so we can win the Cold War moment. So he's pulling all, all of that. Um, so we can defeat the communists. Yes. <laughs> With our science children. Our army of scientific children. As far as I can tell, that's basically how the Cold War went. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in any case, um, this model is, is I think very familiar to us all today. Uh, and, um, you know, there are interactive science museums and natural history museums and aquariums all over the place. Uh, I earlier mentioned the Franklin Institute here in Philly. Um, the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. has some of these aspects while also like also kind of being a history museum. It's kind of an interesting hybrid. Uh, the Great Lakes Science Center in Cleveland, Ohio is another big one. Um, and hundreds of institutions in between. Uh, this is one of those things where it's like there are giant versions of this in big cities and small, weird, dinky versions of it in small towns, like just all over the place. Oh, that just reminds me of my one of my absolute favorite, like small science centers is the um, Pacific Science Center in Paulsbo in Washington. It's just like it's this really tiny um, marine biology like center, like learning center. Um, I don't know if you would call it a museum, but they have lots of like open top tanks where they raise different kinds of like coastal sea creatures. And like it's all kind of like um, it's more guided. There are people there to explain stuff to you because there's open top tanks of sea creatures. But it was like the place where I learned what a sand dollar looks like when it's alive because I'd never seen one before. They're purple. Some of them are purple. And we used to go there every time we would visit my cousins because I was just like, that was the only thing I wanted to do was to go to this little science center and look in all of these tanks at all these sea creatures. Anyway. Speaking of open tanks in Animal Crossing, I, uh, you get to build your, like, populate your museum on your island. Yes. And there is a marine section of the museum and it's just like full of these open tanks it's the most relaxing thing like i'll just go with my little character and post up in in the marine area and just like watch the water move on top of the tanks (laughs) sorry it's another covid thing yeah it sounds really soothing though it is extremely soothing That is also, like, I know not, like, especially big museums, like, I think the Getty has gotten, like, really connected, like, has created Animal Crossing content because of, like, you can build your museum and stuff, which cracks me up. Everybody's just like, wow, I wish I could go to a museum (laughs) or an aquarium. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Look at something outside my house. That would be so cool. (laughs) Back to our history of science museums. Back to the actual podcast. So in the years that have followed, interactive science museums have only continued to emphasize the importance of their educational mission. A 2010 article titled The Evolution of the Science Museum observes that, quote, with no mission to collect, conserve, or research, science technology centers have had the luxury of establishing education as their undisputed first priority. And the, I mean, like, quote's a little weird because the idea that focusing on, on education is like a luxury is, uh, that's kind of not great. Um, but I get, I do see the point 
here, which is that science centers and museums are focused on what they can teach people who visit them, which is really different from the mission of a lot of other types of museums like art or history museums, where traditionally taking care of the collection of objects comes first and teaching people things about those objects is sort of the secondary mission. And I think it's important to consider who the staff members doing all that educating are. In 2018, the organization Gender Equity in Museums Movement released a report analyzing museum work as, quote, pink collar profession. And pink collar is a phrase that came to prominence in 1977 when writer Louise Cap Howe published Pink Collar Workers Inside the World of Women's Work. The idea is that professions associated with women, like teaching and nursing, are often more poorly paid and looked down on than comparable professions that are dominated by men. So as more women have entered the museum profession in recent decades, it has increasingly fallen into this pink-collar category. Now, as we mentioned earlier, about half the museum workforce is women. But according to surveys done by the American Alliance of Museums, People who work in education and visitor services roles in museums are 70 to 80% women. So that's a big gap. Uh, Or at least like a big difference from the general um, percentage. (laughs) Um, But what all of that means is uh, so we have a situation where um, science museums are purely focused on teaching. And the majority of the people doing that teaching are women. And uh, that and teaching both teaching has long had that pink collar stigma and museums in general are starting to have that pink collar stigma. Uh, And that brings us back to COVID-19 and the resulting wave of museum layoffs that are making me crazy. Uh, Staff members whose job it is to interact directly with the public have been the hardest hit by layoffs. Uh, So there are practical reasons for this, like in a very like practical way. Okay, fine. That makes a kind of sense. Um, these positions are usually hourly and their purpose is tied directly to people coming in the door. So if people can't come in the door because we all have to stay home, then, um, yeah, sure. These roles are not needed at this time, but these are roles that have been the heart and soul of the experience at museums since their founding. Uh, and it feels like the crisis is shedding light on the fact that the mission of a lot of organizations uh, rests on the shoulders of staff who are the most sort of financially vulnerable and more likely to be from marginalized groups. Uh, anecdotally, I also believe that education and visitor services tend to be the um, most racially diverse departments, uh, though I could not find specific stats on that. Um, So that is also a part of all of this. Um, And uh, that's, but all of this, it's true in museums, um, but it's true in a lot of other industries as well. Uh, COVID-19 is kind of in all of our discussion of What's an essential worker and what isn't? And uh, who are the people who are at the front lines of all of this? Um, Often have fallen into these pink collar categories. In addition to what this has exposed in the museum world, I think we're just seeing this across the board in so many industries. Um, I think we're even starting to see it in the home I think I saw, I can't remember what uh, 
where this was published and I will find it and I will put it in the show notes. But um, there was a report that was showing that in science right now, women are publishing, not publishing, but um, putting forth less articles for peer review than men, which I think really shows who is having the time right now to be able to continue to produce uh, work and who isn't. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was going to mention that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think that, like, I I saw that article, too, and, like, my one thought was, yeah, of course. Like, it just, it's so on the nose. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's just a really, the, I think the Science Museum case is an interesting one to kind of ruminate on because of the, like, sort of multi-layered effects uh, that are kind of, like, being I don't know, exacerbated or we're seeing them more clearly now. Like this idea that teaching is a pink collar uh, profession. And then you mentioned that there is a sense that like museum work in general is now becoming kind of a be pinked, the collars are becoming be pinked. And it's like a general, it's, I think it's like a canary in a coal mine kind of situation for like, uh, for the devaluation of like what the museums do and the museum as an institution but there's just like there's this strange dynamic that like with science museums in particular like their mission is education that's the first part of it and they we're still finding some way to like undervalue the people who do it who do the primary mission of the museum and it's usually because they're women it's just great it's really awesome Well, Rebecca, I don't know if you came across this during putting this episode together or if this is something that you know, Um, but is leadership largely male? So it so this actually is something that I looked up and this is interesting. And by interesting, I mean, unsurprising and terrible. Uh, If you look at um, the so you got to remember that museums are a massive and diverse category that cover the tiny historic house and the exploratorium and MoMA and um, just, and like so many different kinds of organizations. Uh, and so when they talk about museum professionals, it's, it's it really is this giant category. Um, but they do find, so what's it, so they find that Uh, If you look at like all executive directors, CEOs, leadership level, it tends to be pretty 50-50 split. The big thing that you do see is the higher a budget of a museum, the more likely it is that the CEO will be a man. So basically women like run a shit ton of like tiny historical societies, but men run the giant museums that people have heard of is is kind of what that means in practice. Yeah. Uh, and that and that comes from uh, actually a book that was published by uh, Gender Equity and Museums Movement. Uh, the people in charge of that wrote a book called um, Women in Museums, uh, Gender in the Workplace, I think is the title. And we can link to that. It's really an interesting book where they did a lot of surveys with uh, women museum professionals and um, found that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, not a like super happy note to end the episode on, but it is where we will end nevertheless. Um, if you have not yet caught our bonus episode that we put out this month with Wendy Zuckerman, the host of Science Versus, um, be sure that you go back and listen to that. We chatted with her about what it's like to be a science journalist amidst this pandemic and also what it's like to be a woman in science journalism. Um, and for this episode, if you liked it, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about the episode today, tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience.